Friday night, Braden's class had a uh, fundraiser, and um, they obtained a license to show a Christian film and uh, sold concessions and that sort of thing. And uh, I was thinking about one of the scenes from that movie uh, as I was looking at this passage. One of the heroes, uh, one of the characters is supposed to be a hero. He's a police officer. He's apparently an upstanding member of the community. But then he breaks the law and ends up spending time in jail for 10 years himself. How does this happen? How does someone who in the course of this story, makes the right commitments. I'm going to be a good father. I'm going to honor God. Someone who people see as an example. Here's someone we can trust, someone who's a good friend. How can he become the one who's despised and whose life is destroyed? The answer is that this can happen to anyone. And I think this passage points to at least three reasons. When we scheme to make life work on our own, when we forget that God is the reason for any good that we enjoy in life, and when we multiply lies and violence because we are proud. If these things are true of us, then we will be headed down a path that will destroy us as well. In Hosea 12 and 13, Hosea lays out his case against God's people. The summary of it is chapter 11, verse 12, Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. What is this passage saying? The passage is saying this. Stop going down to Egypt. Get back to God. Stop going down to Egypt. Get back to God. Stop going down to Egypt, first of all. Egypt is a common shorthand in the Old Testament for Israel's old way of life. Instead of going forward to the promised land that God had given them, the people kept wanting to return actually to the land of Egypt. But it also has many figurative uses throughout the Old Testament as a reminder of the tendency of people to return to old ways of living in opposition to what God is calling us away from sin to be and do. What did this look like? Well, this looked like, for them, scheming their way out of trouble. Verse 2 of chapter 12, we see, uh, or rather verse 1, we see that Israel is playing both sides. They're sending tribute to Assyria, making a covenant with them, and then making alliances with Egypt at the same time. We're going to cover our bases. This enemy to the north, this enemy to the southwest, two powerful nations. If we keep both of them happy, we can play one against the other and we will be safe. This was the same kind of behavior that their ancestor Jacob showed by, uh, I think in the King James it uses the word supplanting his brother. It says in verse 3, in the womb he took his brother by the heel. He deceives Laban later on in chapter 12, verse 12, Jacob fled to Aram, worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. There's a degree, I think, of deceit going on even still at that point in his relationship with his father-in-law Laban. Like their father Jacob, the people of Israel were being deceitful. Like the things that God had told them not to do, making alliances with the nations for their security, they were scheming their way out of trouble. They were also forgetting that God is the reason for any good in life. Before we go on to that, scheming your way out of trouble, what does that look like? 
in our society, um, there is an emphasis on mental health. And mental health has become society's way of acknowledging that sin exists without calling it sin. What is going on in this person's life? Well, this person um, had a sort of a, a, a... They have these tendencies, sociopathic tendencies, so they go and they shoot up a school. No, they had hatred in their heart and sin, and they went and did a wicked act. Are there factors that affect that? Absolutely. They could have had bad parenting. They could have had... Um, other effects of bad friends. They could have had any number of things that contributed to the situation, but the root cause of someone going and killing a bunch of people is because they're sinners. The person who, who does the act is a sinner. So society says the solution is if we can just fix the circumstances, no one will ever do anything bad again. One side says take away guns. The other side says get them counseling. The reality is taking away the object that they use doesn't help because they will find some other object to use. And just talking with them through the problem will not help apart from God's grace because the problem of hatred in their hearts will still be there and they will express it. Sometimes people say, well, you know, there's other problems with mental health like depression. Here's the thing. There are a limited number of cases in which there are physiological causes for what we describe as depression. For a majority of people, the reason they experience what people describe as depression is because they're making wrong choices in life. Your average person is not depressed because there's some sort of uh, problem in the brain because of traumatic brain injury or because of um, uh, a change in hormone levels right after pregnancy or because of uh, something that uh, mom did when she was pregnant with the baby that affected certain things. There are a handful of people for whom that's their experience and it's caused various kinds of trauma and there are legitimate need for some sort of medical assistance to solve that, right? But your average person who says I'm depressed is depressed because they're making ungodly choices. I decided to stay up late all night doing whatever I felt like so then I was tired at work and did a bad job. So then my boss yelled at me so to make myself feel better, I went and did this to make myself feel better and it cost me lots of money and now I don't have money to do this thing that I need to do or I ate lots of ice cream and now I'm unhealthy or I whatever else. They've gotten into a pattern of selfish choices that make them feel bad and that is what's supposed to happen. When we behave selfishly, we're supposed to feel bad. But here's what happens. Instead of dealing with the root cause of sin, society says you can scheme your way out of trouble. Take this pill, do this thing, repeat this mantra, and your life will be fixed. The root cause is you don't have a good relationship with God and the people around you. The root cause is not you feel bad. The root cause is not somebody did such and such, so I respond in anger and go kill someone. The root cause is the sin in our hearts. The solution, therefore, is how do we address it in the context of a relationship with God? 
For the Israelites, instead of coming back to God in repentance, they said, we're going to get Assyria and Egypt to help us out of the mess that happened because God is trying to get our attention because we're running away from him. And so what happens so many times is we have problems in life and we're not getting along with the people around us and things feel like they're spiraling out of control. And the reason is because instead of pursuing our relationship with God, we're pursuing a relationship with our phones and with a stupid box on the wall and with hobbies and with whatever else. And I'm not just saying this to you like I've never struggled with this because I have and I do. What I'm saying to you is if you try to scheme your way out of what's not working in your life by anything other than coming back to God, it will not work, particularly not in the long haul. It might work for a little while, right? Because you and I will feel better if we do things that make us feel better. But that feeling doesn't last. You and I can get by by not going back to God for a little while in the context of our relationships, but that doesn't last. Israel was trying to scheme their way out of trouble, and we try to do the same thing. And that is going back to a way of life that forgets God, and we can't do that if we actually belong to him. Stop going down to Egypt by forgetting that God is the reason for any good in life. What did Israel do? Verse 11, they multiplied altars to pagan gods. And their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. I've been digging in the back corner of the yard at the new house, and I've dug up, I think, 10 or 11 bricks so far. I don't know why they're buried in the back of the yard. I'm not sure how many more are buried there. I'm sure I'll find more. Um, Some of you don't like bricks, and you express that to me, and that's totally fine. And, uh, you know, I think we'd rather have field stones to line the edges of the garden. But the point is, they're they're buried there. Why are they buried there? They're buried there because I dug them up because I was trying to plant something else there. Why are there rocks at the edge of fields? Why do we call them field stones? Because they get kicked up as you plow the dirt so you can plant the crops. The stones get tilled up out of the earth and they're on the side. God's basically saying, I think both in number and in value, here are what their altars look like. They're like the stone heaps you see everywhere. They're everywhere. They're about as valuable as those stone heaps. If you live in the city, you pay good money for piles of stones to like decorate, right? If you're in a field, you don't want them. You want somebody to get rid of them because they're in your way and they break your plow and all that sort of thing, right? So God says, here are worthless altars that are multiplied without number. And why is this happening? Because the Israelites are attributing their success to their idolatry. Verse 2, because of their pride, chapter 13, verse 2, because of their pride, they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, the work of craftsmen, they say, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. We saw this back in chapter 10. The more Israel's fruit, the more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. And chapter 11, verse 2, the more the prophets called them, the more they went away from God's words. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. So the more that God pursued them, the more that they attributed their success to idols, they multiplied these altars to pagan gods. Was there a similarity between their life and the life of Jacob, their ancestor? Yes. And Hosea highlights it here in Verses 4 and 5. 
But here's the contrast as well. Jacob found God at Bethel. In verse 4, he found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Now, did Jacob faithfully follow God? At first, his attitude was, I'm going to bargain with God. You take care of me, I'll come back to this spot, I'll serve you and offer you sacrifices. Eventually, he actually has a relationship with God. Not perfect, because he still makes a lot of wrong choices, but he goes from being a schemer and a deceiver to someone who actually has a relationship with God. Here's the irony. Jacob is at Bethel and names it the house of God because he has a vision of God there. Hosea calls that same place Beth-Avon, the house of vanity, because the people have turned to idols in the place where their ancestor Jacob met God. What is this described as at the beginning of chapter 12? Feeding on wind, verse 1. Pursuing the east wind continually. This wind would destroy them, chapter 13, verse 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. His fountain will become dry, his spring will be dried up, it will plunder his treasury of every precious article. The people were scheming like Jacob, but God taught Jacob not to scheme, but the people kept scheming. God reproved them, lies and deceit. God reproved them to dispute, verse 2, because of their deeds. They continued by forgetting God was the reason for the good that they experienced. They attributed it to their pagan idols. They turned to God in the very place that their ancestor had, they turned away from God and to idols in the very place that their ancestor Jacob had met God. And then they multiplied lies and violence in pride. Israel lied to God, chapter 11, verse 12, and to their allies, chapter 12, verse 1. Then they oppressed their clients uh, in terms of people they were selling merchandise to. In verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress as they trusted in their riches. Chapter 12, verse 8, Ephraim said, I have become rich, I have found wealth, I do not sin. Chapter 13, verse 6, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. Being satisfied, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me, God says. Is there a parallel with Jacob? There is. Chapter 12, verse 12. Jacob thought, to some extent, his riches and his success, his family, were due to his own work. He fled to the land of Aram. He worked for a wife. He kept sheep for a wife. This is what I have earned. This is what I deserve. This is mine. God makes it clear that he was the one who was all along the way taking care of Jacob and his family, verse 13. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was kept. So Jacob says, I keep sheep to get a wife, and God said, no, I keep you so that you remain my people. Jacob said, I will work to earn this, and God says, I will deliver you by a prophet. So even in Jacob's case, God was the one providing for, sustaining him, and so forth all along the way. What does it look like, going back to the second point, to forget God as the reason for good in life? When we attribute it to other things. I've worked hard. Great, you should. But your hard work will come to nothing unless God allows it to. I'm smart and I know lots of things. Fine. There's a lot of people who are smart and know lots of things that nobody hires when they get out of school. 
God provides you a job, that's God's doing, not yours. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you got good grades. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying God is the reason for the fact that you have a job. God is the reason that you have the ability to do well in the school. God is the one who puts you in a family that could afford to take you to that school. None of those things are ultimately your doing. That's God's doing. So it's easy for us to say, I worked hard, I deserve, this is my reward because of me. And God says, no, I provided that for you. Sometimes people will say, well, my health. I ate good food, and I did this, and I did the other thing, so I'm doing good in life. It's been fascinating for me to watch my great aunt and my grandma. Love both of them. My great aunt's gone now. Um, my great aunt was, let's be honest, she was just like a great big lady. She loved food. She enjoyed it her whole life until the very end. And she was one of those who would use like a stick of butter every time she cooked. And she would use tons of sugar. She would use all these sorts of things. I don't know if she was sick a day in her life. Hardly. Up until the very end much like my great-grandfather. And then there's my grandma. My grandma, who would never touch a drop of alcohol, but they used whiskey to revive her because she wasn't breathing as a baby. Back in the um, South Georgia, the little country doctor. My grandma, who has had, I don't know how many neck surgeries, problems with digestion, problems with scoliosis, problems with this and that and the other thing, She's the one who my grandpa would joke. She said, if you hadn't made me eat all this hay because she'd feed him oatmeal in the morning, he said, I could have been in heaven 10 years sooner. He was still in heaven sooner than the rest of us wanted. But my point is, she was the one that was concerned about food. She would go for walks. She would walk on the treadmill. She would, you know, she played basketball in college, all these sorts of things, right? Did all the right things, had tons of health problems. My great aunt did none of the right things and was perfectly healthy. So we could boast in our health. I did this. This is mine. Look at me. God say, hey, you can have it. You cannot have it. That's really up to me, not to you. And I'm not saying we shouldn't eat right and exercise and all those sorts of things. I'm just saying we shouldn't be proud about it. Because in a single moment, all that can be taken away as a reminder that it's not ours. It's God's. So we could say, I worked hard. I earned this. This is mine. I'm healthy and strong because of me. Could boast in our children. Look at all these children. God gives children. God takes away children. There are so many things that we can boast in and say, look at me. But if we ever forget that God is the reason for any good in life, we're behaving just like the Israelites. We're worshiping ourselves and the fruit of our hands instead of the God who gave us good gifts. And when we are in the practice of scheming, and when we are forgetting that God is the reason for the good in our lives, we're going to turn to all sorts of sins. The specific sin that the Israelites had was lies and violence and oppression due to pride. When we start to think it's me, not God, that is the reason for this, we get proud. And when we're proud, what do we say? Nothing can touch me. And when we say nothing can touch me, what do we do? I don't have to be honest. It won't catch up to me. I can take advantage of that person. What's somebody going to do about it? 
If we try to fix problems in life on our own, scheme our way out of trouble, if we forget that God is the reason for any good in our lives, if we multiply lies or violence because our heart is proud, these are signs that we are going back to the old way of life before God. To the extent that you and I say, I know Jesus, and then we act in these ways, we're trying to go back just like the people of Israel kept trying to go back to Egypt. What's the solution? The solution is to get back to God. We'll see this idea develop more next week as we wrap up the book of Hosea and review what he said, his message to the people. But here's what God wanted from Israel, to return to him. Look at chapter 13, verse... um, uh, Let's see here. Chapter 12, verse 6. Therefore return to your God... Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. What God wanted for Israel was to return and replace lies and violence with kindness and justice. For them to depend on God, not on themselves, to come back to him and quit trying to go back to Egypt or Assyria or any human help. Why did they need to go back to God and why do we? First of all, because God is the deliverer and the judge. God delivered Israel from Egypt. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 4. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was kept. God is the one who delivered them. God is the one who should get the credit. They should not trust in themselves. If the fact that God positively delivered them is not sufficient motivation, then the fact that God judged Israel when they went their own way should be a reminder. Chapter 12, verse 14, Ephraim is provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, I will be like a lion to them because they forgot me. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their chests. I will devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear them. We were talking in the Sunday school hour about this illustration from the book of Micah, that when God descends in wrath to carry judgment out, the mountains themselves melt like wax. Think of the immensity of power that it takes for stone and earth to run like wax from a candle as it burns. To see the power of God restrained, but then in a moment expressed, that's not something that you want turned against you. So if it's not sufficient motivation for you that God has shown kindness to you and delivered you and helped you, then the fact that God is a God to be feared should surely motivate us. But the people forgot that God was a God to be feared. God is the deliverer and the judge. We don't scheme, we don't come up with our own solutions because if we are doing it in our own strength, we're not trusting in God. And if we're doing it in our own way, God will hold us accountable for violating the path that he said we're supposed to walk in. Again, what does this look like? When you don't think that God is the one who helps you, you're not going to pray. Or your prayers are going to be very insubstantial. So, I'm not mocking kids because to the extent that they don't pray better, there is a degree that it's our responsibility for not modeling it well. But what's a typical prayer of a kid at a meal? 
Thank you for this food. Thank you for this day. Thank you for my family. Thank you, God. The end. Our relationship with God needs to have more depth than that. If your relationship with God is, thank you for this day, and then you never talk to God the whole rest of the day, there is a lot missing from your walk with God if it is real. And I'm not saying it's not real, but I'm saying it could be very, very shallow. We don't need long, pretentious prayers, but we do need to walk with God. The characteristic of God's people throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament is they call on the name of the Lord. And if you and I don't call on the name of the Lord, then it could very well be a sign that you and I have forgotten that God is the one who delivers us. So, when something doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go, last Saturday I went to rent the moving truck and I showed up and they said, oh, we don't have the moving truck. Well, where is it? It's in Lake Orion. Okay, when's it going to be here? Eh, probably in an hour and a half. I'm supposed to move at 10 and it's 9.15 you're saying it's not here. What are we going to do to fix it? So I got very frustrated. Why did I get very frustrated? Because I wasn't praying for God to help me work out this situation. I was saying I have to solve it. And when I have to solve it, then my response is going to tend to be a sinful response because I don't have the power to solve it. And so the frustration of my inability to fix it is going to spiral out of control and I'm going to behave in ways that are sinful. If we forget that God is the judge, then we're going to behave in those sinful ways because we think, what is anybody going to do about it? I'm justified in being angry. Like Jonah, right? His plant died. I can be angry about this. My truck wasn't where it needed to be. I can be angry about this. Why? Because you're in charge? No. If God is the judge, God gets to say how I should or shouldn't respond. And God says, remember that I'm the deliverer. Ask me for help. And God says, even when you're frustrated, here are the lines that you don't get to cross because I have said that's unacceptable. We need to remember that God is the deliverer and the judge. We also need to remember that God is the source of all good. What good did he show to the people of Israel? God gave Israel his word through the prophets. Chapter 12, verse 10. I've also spoken to the prophets and I gave numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. So to the extent that the people of Israel said, you, you didn't tell us, God, we didn't know. It's a lie because God did tell them and they did know. God showed favor to them and provided for their needs since the days of Jacob. It says, Jacob contended with God and wept for his favor in verse 4. And God answered and said, yes, I'll take care of you. Yes, I'll bless you. And he gives them the blessing. Go back to the thing I said a moment ago. If God in his wrath contains the immensity of who he is, but then the moment he steps foot on the earth, the mountains melt like wax. Do you think that it was a fair fight if Jacob beat the angel in a wrestling match? God could have said to the angel, stop holding back, and it wouldn't have just been Jacob's arm got dislocated. God's showing mercy to Jacob. Jacob's wrestling basically with God, and God shows him mercy because that's not a fight he could win. But God showed his favor to Jacob. God provided for his needs. 
protected him from Esau, kept him from the people of the land that wanted to do him harm, cared for the people in the wilderness. Chapter 13, verse 5, when they experienced drought, he gave them food, he gave them water, he gave them protection from the people that attacked them. He sustained them for 40 years through miraculous ways. He even gives them a king. They didn't deserve a king at the moment that they asked for it. Chapter 13, verse 10. Where is your king that you may he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. You asked in the wrong way at the wrong time, but I gave him to you anyway. But now I have taken him away to show you that you can't trust in your king. You have to trust in me. I am the source of good. Your king is not the source of good. Your efforts are not the source of your good. Your idols are not the source of your good. I am your God and I am the source of your good. That's what he says to them. What happens when you and I forget this? We start to take God's place in our own imagination. Like I said a few minutes ago, why do you have what you have? Because God is the source of all good gifts. Why do you not have some other thing that would be really hard? Because God hasn't given it to you. And we can take credit all we want for the course of our lives, but the reality is we think that we control the course of our lives and ultimately we do not. Should we take responsibility for the decisions that we make? Do those decisions have consequences? Absolutely. But Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap, but God directs the outcome. We make plans, but God directs our steps. If you lived much in this life at all, you know that what you planned, the way things were going to go, and the way things actually have gone, usually is a very different sort of a thing. Have you forgotten that God is the source of good in your life? There's a part against us that gets irked and uh, just frustrated. Well, don't I get any credit? I have done this good thing. I have done that good thing. I mean, you have. In the same way that you bought your parents' birthday presents when they were little, when you were a little kid. With their money, with them driving you to the store, with them knowing what you were going to give them. Yeah, you did it, but you did it because you had a whole lot of help along the way. God is the source of all good in our lives. We can't forget that because when we do, we start to say, look at me. We're at a baseball game uh, Monday night. Was it Monday night? Thursday night. One of those days in the week. Monday, Thursday, basically the same, right? Um, It's been a busy week. One of the coaches was uh, trying to motivate the kids, not the coach for Braden's school, but the coach for the other school. And so he says to them, believe in yourself. And then he threw a ball right into the dirt in front of the plate. We're like, oh, I guess he didn't believe in himself enough. And then he threw it over into the cage behind the, the, the batter. We're like, I guess he believed too much, right? So we were having fun with it because it was, you know, no offense to Braden's team, but they were losing really badly. And, uh, but the other team was just being really arrogant and insufferable. and So we were amusing ourselves by making comments on the sidelines. Uh, then a little bit later, 
he's like just trying to get them all hyped up and he's like, you need to get out there because the world is watching. Ah, uh, yeah, there's like 50 people here. The world is not watching. Then a plane flew over and one of the dads was like, oh, there's the world. No, you see, it's true. He's there. They're watching. It's going to be on national TV. Um, we get such an inflated perspective of ourselves. One of those kids, 13, 14 years old, walks out on the pitcher's mound and says, the world is watching and I believe in myself and I am amazing. Does that correspond to reality at all? No. Why are you where you are? Because your parents paid for you to go to the school, because they were willing to drive you to practices and pick you up afterward, because the coach was trying to teach you something, maybe not really Christian things, even though they're a Christian school, but something. Um, all those are reasons that you're standing there and you're able to do the thing that you can do. So if you, in your 13 or 14-year-old mind, say, look at me, I have arrived. But then we do it as adults. We forget that God is the source of all good in our lives, and we say, look at me. And God says, no, look at me. Why else do we need to get back to God? Because God rejects proud and deceitful oppressors. God says he's going to punish them for their evil ways. Verse 2, the Lord has a dispute with Jacob and will punish him according to his ways, repay him according to his deeds. Verse 14, the Lord will bring back his reproach to him. Chapter 13, verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is stored up. Chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, the east wind will come, Samaria will be held guilty. And this is where it gets really sobering. She has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women will be ripped open. Assyria was a bloodthirsty nation. And though they repented briefly in the time of Jonah, they came back with a vengeance against God's people and did unspeakable things against them. Though repentance would bring mercy, chapter 12, verse 6, return to your God. Israel's refusal led to death. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. These themes are not only found in the Old Testament. Did God reject proud and deceitful oppressors then? Absolutely. Does he reject proud and deceitful oppressors now? God has appointed Jesus as the Savior of the world, but also the judge of the unrepentant. God is the Father from whom every good and perfect gift comes down, revealing himself through Jesus to a world that by and large rejects the gospel. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble who are miserable and mourn and weep over their sin. Those are all verses from the New Testament that correspond exactly with what we see in the Old Testament. So there's a very real sense in which God calls you to the same life that he urged Israel through Hosea to follow. Turn to God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God. What does it mean to turn to God? A verse that I really like that you've heard many times before. The Thessalonians turned from their idols to God. We have to turn from ourselves, what we worship, all of our own efforts to God. And he will save us. Turn to God. Keep turning to God. 1 John 1.9 When we sin, and if we say we don't sin, we call God a liar, because we all do. 
And we shouldn't try to sin because if sin lives in us, we really probably don't know God. But when we sin, confess it and God will restore and forgive. Start turning to God. Keep turning to God. Observe kindness and justice. Replace the old patterns of life. Replace theft with hard work and generosity. Replace lying with speaking truth because you are connected with the people around you. So if you lie, you're not just hurting them, you're hurting yourself. Paul talks about the putting off, putting on in Ephesians 4 and 5 and Colossians 3, all these places. Turn to God, observe kindness and justice in place of the sins that characterize your life before. Wait for your God. What did the Thessalonian believers do? They waited for Jesus to come back. What did Paul do while he's in prison? He waited for God to deliver him. What did Peter do? The people prayed. Peter's waiting for God's deliverance, whether that be through death or from death. God wants the same thing from us today that he wanted from Israel back then. If you and I pay attention particularly to verse 6, we will find God's blessing. Note how Paul uses first, uh, Hosea 13, verse 14 in a very different way in 1 Corinthians 15. You and I usually just look at it in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? In Hosea, Hosea is using it to say, judgment is coming, you will die, God's compassion is withheld because you would not repent. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is using it to say, if you repent, death cannot kill you, the grave cannot hold you, God's resurrection is something that you share. Here, it's a message of judgment and condemnation and despair. There, it's a message of hope and victory and triumph. But what makes the difference is not that God is different. What makes the difference is your relationship with God. If you make yourself God's enemy, the grave does have a sting and death does have victory. But if you belong to God and are one of his people, it will not prevail because it didn't prevail over Jesus. The question is not, do we deserve God's wrath? Like Israel, we naturally trust in ourselves. We fail to see God as the source of all good things, and we speak lies while oppressing those around us. We proudly forget the God who made us. Even once we turn to God, we constantly feel that pull back to the old way of life. But there is hope. The hope is Jesus. He rejected the devil, the father of lies, so we don't have to lie. He refused to worship him and show the pride of life so we don't have to be proud oppressors like Satan is and like all who follow in his steps. Jesus can help you and I do the same at the point of salvation and every point after. So really what it comes down to when we encounter a passage like this is, are you and I going to turn to God day after day? It starts at the moment we trust Jesus and it continues all throughout our life. I'm turning away from sin. I'm turning away from idolatry. I'm turning to God. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to turn away from the old way of life in which I lied and lusted and cheated and stole and all those sorts of things. I'm going to turn to the new way of life in which I demonstrate the fruit of the spirit of love and sacrifice and joy and service to God and others and all of those sorts of things. Are we going to keep running back here? Or are we going to keep trusting in these things? God says, that's the old way. That's where you were. That's not where you are or where you're supposed to be. Don't go back here. Come back to God. Don't keep turning here. Keep turning back to God. If you and I turn here, what did Israel find in Egypt? They found death. They found slavery. They found misery. 
do we really think that we're going to be any different if we follow in their footsteps and go back to the old way of life? Stop going down to Egypt. Get back to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. Our hearts are prone to wander. The seductive lies of the world and of our hearts and of even those who serve Satan, his demons and his servants, are that if we go our own way, we will find joy and happiness. If we do what we want, we will accomplish our goals in life. Lord, help us not to believe in ourselves because that way leads to destruction. Help us not to proudly exalt ourselves and think that we are the focus of life because we aren't and you are. Help us not to then have those wrong thoughts and desires lead us to all sorts of sinful actions because then we invoke your wrath against us. Like we saw in the book of Micah this morning, Lord, help us to smash the idols that we love before you have to step in and take them away from us. It feels hard to keep coming back to these themes week after week as we have gone through the book of Hosea. But the reality is Hosea preached this book over decades and the people still did not listen. And so if we take a few short weeks, but we don't listen, we're guilty too. Thank you that we can find forgiveness for that guilt in Jesus. Thank you that there is hope for repentance through your power. Thank you that you are a God who forgives and shows compassion. But Lord, help us to see that we have to turn. We cannot love sin we cannot exalt ourselves in pride. We cannot forget you. Burn the bridges back to the old way of life, Lord, for us. Help us to set the torch to the supports for them. And help us commit that there will be no turning back that you have called us away from this world, and though no one follow, we will still go with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.